has John MacArthur presented what some would call as a loser theology. <laughs> We're going to get into that. This, guys, this is this one. This one's going to poke. I'm just telling you right now, this is not a condemnation of anything and everything MacArthur said, and this is not an endorsement of what's said in this video, but it is an interesting conversation in terms of church history and what position has church history held. Some of you guys don't give a crap about church history. I get it, but I think it's important. And here lies a very necessary conversation when it comes to the study of the end times, a.k.a. eschatology. This is Right Response Ministries. And this is Pastor Joel. California has infamously said, we lose down here. Speaking to Christians, speaking to the church of Jesus Christ, we are going to lose. We will not waltz into the kingdom of God. Uh, the post-millennial hopeful eschatology is a sham. The reality is that we lose down here. Don't mm. take my word for it. Go ahead and take MacArthur's. Let me play the clip and then I'll break it down. Oh, guess what? We don't win down here. We lose. Huh. You ready for that? Oh, you were a post-millennialist. You thought we were just going to go waltzing into the kingdom as you took over the world. No. We lose here. Get it. They killed Jesus. They killed all the apostles. We're all going to be persecuted. If any man come after me, let him. But then himself. Garbage of prosperity gospel. No, we don't win down here. Are you ready for that? Just to clear the air, I love this clarity. We don't win. We lose on this battlefield, but we win on the big one, the eternal one. I believe Mike Winger has a conversation with Pastor Joel, which is actually really good. I'd encourage you guys to check it out. I wanted to react to it, but this is, they believe in theomony, which is a little different than just a post-millennial position. What I don't appreciate about what John MacArthur is saying here is that one, he's conflating those who hold to a post-millennial eschatology Postmillennial meaning that massive revival breaks out, that the world becomes more Christianized, mm -hmm. and then Jesus comes back. Believe it or not, a lot of church history is held to that position. Versus a premillennial eschatology, the world gets really, really, really bad. Everything goes to hell in a handbasket, uh, and then persecution breaks out, and then Jesus comes back. So it's a different, and then the thousand-year reign Christ happens. So I'll give you, I'll save my opinion towards the end. But what I do find ironic is that he's conflating post-millennial theology with the prosperity gospel, hmm. which is not fair. That's not that's not fair. And then two, I would say that it's ironic that someone that's worth $10 million who owns multiple properties in Orange County is telling people that we lose down here. Respectfully, and, and, I, and I mean this in, in, in the most respectful way, John MacArthur, by every measurable metric under the sun, in, in a worldly sense, sir, you're winning. You guys think I'm stupid. I'm not stupid, guys. I, I know jo this. John MacArthur's winning. <laughs> and I'm not mad at it. Help, oh, yeah. uh, help other men win. Mm -hmm. Help other men win. Because you know what? There's men down here hurting. There's a lot of guys who are younger than you that are trying to figure out how they can also preach the gospel faithfully while not being a, a broke boy. There's a lot of folks down here that are trying to figure it out. And so, you know, multiple properties in Orange County and Southern California, $10 million net worth. Big money. Ma uh, you, you, put your, you put your own name on a study Bible, you know? How many people get to put their name <laughs> on a study Bible? There's nothing wrong with John MacArthur winning. He deserves it. This man's been faithful for how long? Preaching the gospel, writing books, dropping Bible commentaries, conferences. But to say we're losing down here? Yeah, that's a little much. Why you're winning? Hey, I'll take that. I'll take John, a John MacArthur loss any day. 
That's a, that's a, that's a, <laughs> if that's if that's losing. Hey man. Hey, I'm gonna go home to my wife and be like, "Hey, uh, sweetie, we have to take a loss. We have to take a John MacArthur loss. We got to so take a John MacArthur. What are we talking about? I love that clarity too. Let me start with that. I love that clarity uh, because a lot of times we talk around one another. We use ambiguous language. We are not clear about our theology, the implications of our theology, what we actually mean, what we actually believe. And so here we have John MacArthur, not a bunch of Christian nationalist advocates, which I would be one, right? I'm not necessarily excited about the label, but I do fall into the camp. We don't have a bunch of Christian nationalist, you know, young, reformed, and, I, and restless I think the guys reason, saying... The reason why he would say he's a Christian nationalist is because he believes in theomany, and theomany views that Christians should essentially influence government. They gotta figure out a different name for that. Though. Christian Christian nationalist, yeah, that sounds. You sound like you're a part of Westboro Baptist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I think you're I think edging into some dangerous territory. Yeah, that's a good look. with Go some ahead. titles and headlines. Hey, this is loser theology. No, you have John MacArthur, who ironically would be the Protestant Pope. He himself saying, "We hold to loser theology." It is clarity. I love this clarity, says Dr. John MacArthur, and I love it too says Pastor Joel Webin, I appreciate when we're honest about what we believe. That is his belief. That is his theology. We lose. Calling it loser theology is not a pejorative. It is not harsh. It is not rude. It is not mean. It's not mocking. It is the accurate label chosen not by, again, the Christian nationalist side of the aisle, but rather chosen by John MacArthur and those that he represents himself. It is his... It's a his w, man. He's going in. Seriously. <laughs> loser theology. Now, let me give a little bit of friendly, brotherly advice. Mm -hmm. Loser theology is not going to play well with young Christian men. Leaky dispensational premillennial eschatology. It's not going to play well, and watching it and those who are advocates of it is kind of like watching the last living dinosaur slowly walk oh off into gosh. the horizon. This man came with the gloves off and no chill. Now, to be fair, he says that this style of theology, which he, what do you call it, uh, premillennial dispensationalism, mm -hmm. isn't going to work well with young men, which I would I would a hundred percent agree with. The issue is that doesn't necessarily make postmillennialism true. Yeah, you can't be like just, my theology is right just because it works. Yeah, you know, more guys are gonna like getting around a postmill view of dominion on this side of eternity and yada yada yada. Like that doesn't. That doesn't necessarily mean that postmillennialism is true. Now, again, I'll reserve my judgment towards the end of this video. I don't know if that's a good argument. Yeah, it's a very pragmatic argument, but I'm just, I don't know if it's a good one. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. It, it's it has an expiration date that is rapidly approaching. Uh, this very novel theology, dispensationalism, namely, uh, it's only 150 years old. We've got Darby. We've got the Schofield Bible. You've got certain events like Israel becoming a nation state in the 40s, and so 70 years people got excited. You've got, um, you know, all, all this. All these things happen that made us think in a certain term. This is not biblical theology. It doesn't have its roots within 2,000 years of church history. Historic premillennialism, we can track it back to Justin Martyr, right? That's arguably the oldest eschatological viewpoint. Quickly on the heels, we have amillennialism and postmillennialism. But dispensational premillennialism is not historic premillennialism. Dispensationalism means that they view Israel as under a different dispensational relationship with God. There's a huge fascination with the nation of Israel because God is still going to work through Israel somehow versus what he holds to, which is probably, and I'm not 100% certain on this, covenant theology. Covenant theology believes that God holds different covenants with different people, and modern-day Israel today is the church. Ah, 
So, so Israel doesn't have a whole separate arrangement with God, even though they don't believe in Jesus, they're still kind of in, but not really in, and God's going to stay, right? It, it holds to, no, is, Israel today, if they don't believe in Jesus, they're not in, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what he's getting at, and, and, and his point here, which he's making a great point, is that this is all relatively modern, and it's all relatively on the heels of Israel being established as a nation in 1948. Yeah. And I'm going to say something uncomfortable, and I don't like Ooh. to say this, but this is Israel, and I asked Dr. Michael Brown about this, Israel being established as a nation, and then one of the OGs in the faith, who I think is amazing, him falsely, not prophesying, but predicting that the world was going to end in the 80s, the person that the movie Jesus Revolution, one of the people that the movie Jesus Revolution is based on, predicting that Jesus was going to return, Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel. That's cool. So this all interlaps, and that's a, that's a unfortunately this this dispensational theology is one of those things that has a kind of has an asterisk neck next to Chuck Smith's name. Wow, you know, not according to me. Go watch Mike Winger's video about it. Go like go watch Mike Winger's video about it, where he talks about Chuck Smith falsely predicting that Jesus was going to come back. I think within like 1984 or something like that, or some year. He, he did it wow. multiple times. And so, granted, it's not on some like. Heaven's Gate cult, we're going to, you know what I mean? But there was definitely some weird stuff going on with this dispensationalism stuff. And again, that also doesn't make it wrong. Yes. Just because Chuck Smith did some goofy stuff, that also doesn't make it wrong. But it definitely makes you go, well, wait a minute. This is this is modern, and you got solid Bible teachers, usually in other areas, predicting the return of Jesus within a specific timeline. That's kind of weird. You know what I mean? Hey, you want to see something kind of crazy? Over 75% of the people that watch this channel are not subscribed. Please consider subscribing and turning your bell notification on so that you don't miss anything we have going here. And so a lot of people are saying they're, they're, they're baby Christians. It is a dying breed. It came on the scene in the 1800s. It is a novel idea, and it has run its course. Three terms that you should be familiar with. Now, I'm going to define them in the way that I'm using them, so don't inject to me a certain meaning that I don't actually intend. Here are the terms, and I will define them. Gnosticism, pietism, and nihilism. Mm, mm, He's going in. Gnosticism is the view that material world is bad, that things are uh, spiritual things are, are good, material world is bad, and you mm. grow by knowledge, right? And then he said nihilism, Alex Hermosi vibes, it's all yeah. pointless, it's all meaningless. He's basically saying, is dispensational fruitful based on the results that it produces? Ah. Is it helpful? This is a good argument. I'm not going to lie. And again, the alternatives to dispensationalism and premillennialism is postmillennialism, which is radical breakthrough, revival happens, the world gets more Christianized, people people get saved, they, people, you know, the, the gospel gets preached in every nation, which by the way, we're nowhere near that. And then the, everyone gets converted or most people get converted. And then Jesus comes back. Then there's amillennialism, which is like Jesus is kind of reigning now through the church in a way. And then there's premillennialism, which is what a lot of evangelicals hold to. Pietism, pietism, and nihilism. I do believe that these are accurate theological terms, not in every sense of the word, but this is how I mean it. Gnosticism, that there's a radical dualism, a radical divide between the spiritual and the physical, Mm -hmm. between the sacred and the secular. That's a part of John MacArthur's theology and those who would you know, throw their hat in the ring with him. Uh, that is a part of their theology. It is a, a Gnostic theology, not in every historical sense of the term Gnostic, not not with That's special good. secret knowledge, not with an elite group that yep. knows things, a revelation and everybody Concept. else is in the dark. I'm not using the term in that sense, but it is Gnosticism in the radical divide between the sacred and the common, between the spiritual and the physical. That's that, good. That Christian- 
That's good. I mean, he's 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 going he's going in right now, which I would agree with. I do think that a lot of guys that hold this also tend to hold this sort of view of secular versus sacred, of uh, the the marketplace versus the church needing to be separated from the marketplace. Like it it, it, it is very common. Faith has no real practical physical implications for a nation, for uh, the world, for your family. Uh, that is a dying breed of theology. It will not work well with young men because of the nature of young men, but it also doesn't work well with the scripture, which is vitally more important. Not just that it doesn't appeal okay. to a certain group of people, right? Uh, Christian theology will always not appeal to a certain group of people, namely unbelievers, mm, sure. right? If that was the only reason, the only objection I had to this theology, then we would have a problem. We would be doing eisegesis rather than exegesis, but it does not pair well with the scripture. And that's first and foremost. So Gnosticism, a radical divide. I'm using the term to say it's all the emphasis on the spiritual, but none of the implications of the physical. Come on, a lot of y'all are stuck in that right now. A lot of you guys can't hear any sort of practical implications of Bible teaching because you're so wrapped up in it all being spiritual, everything being a demon, every every issue being one of theology, and seldom the uh, application of theology to a praxology to where you are living out the gospel. You are living out the biblical principles of what it means to have a gospel-centered worldview in your finances, in your marriage, in your career, in your health, in your fitness, in the marketplace. He's going in right now, man. Like this, right? Are we in a spiritual war or a cultural war? Is there a culture war going on? There's a lot of guys in the MacArthur type camp that would say it's not a culture war. Stop fighting the culture war. Stop caring about the culture war. It's a spiritual war. Okay, well, here's the reality. It's both. And here's why. It is first and foremost a spiritual war. That is thoroughly biblical. That is objectively what's going on in the world today. A spiritual war, right? Our weapons are not carnal, but spiritual. Our 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 battle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and spirits. But here's the thing. Get a whole biblical theology. So cross-reference over from, from our battle not being with flesh and blood, but then look at what Paul says to Timothy. Paul says to Timothy that Satan takes captive people to do his will, that we should rebuke our opponents with gentleness, not knowing if God would grant them repentance after having been taken captive by Satan. So here's the deal. Our battle is against a principality, a spiritual entity, cr cr creature, namely Satan himself. But here's the deal. Satan employs within his ranks flesh and blood. That's crazy. There is a sense in which our battle is with flesh and blood because our spiritual enemy, he employs flesh and blood in the ranks of his army. Mm. So it is, first and foremost, a spiritual war, but with culture implications. And here's another reason why. The reason why there are cultural, physical, tangible, earthly implications of this this spiritual war happening right now is because the spirits that are at war care about the earthly creation. Mm. God cares about the world, the cosmos, the physical world that he created. He's at war with Satan. Guess what? Satan cares about the world. He wants to be the prince of this air. He wants dominion over the physical earth. He doesn't want to just reign in the 17th dimension. He wants to have dominion and reign and rule in the physical reality, in the cosmos. So God cares about the physical creation, the world. Satan that he's at war with, he cares about the physical world and in terms of people leftists and progressives and democrats they care very much about the physical world there's only one group that i can think of that doesn't seem to care about the physical world and it's evangelical christians going in right now i ain't got a whole lot i'm disagreeing with this gentleman <laughs> on Christians, we are the only people who don't care about the culture war, who don't care about the physical world, that don't care about the welfare of our nation, that don't care about these things because we're Gnostic. 
Mm. At some level, maybe not all the way, the whole nine yards, but at some level, we have given into Gnosticism, at least in the reality of it being um, all about the spiritual and not about the physical. Gnostic. Okay. Second, pietism. I mean that in the sense, defining my terms, that everything is private. So Gnostic, it, it's it's all the emphasis on the spiritual, none on the tangible, mm. the physical, the literal. Pietistic, what I mean is in pietism, it's all private rather than public. John MacArthur famously wrote his article after the lockdown of churches with COVID, right? He said, Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Yes and amen, Dr. MacArthur, a million times over. But I would urge you to consider going one step further, and here's the biblical support for it, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Jesus. It says this, that God has appointed Christ as head of the church. No, as head of all things to the benefit of the church. <laughs> Come on, man. Does this man have a teleprompter? No, bro. Because this, this is, I mean, he lives in this world of theomony. And again, I mean, this isn't an endorsement of theomony, but he's going in right now. This man. He's, he's, he's flowing, bro. This man. He's knows flowing. What he's going to say at all times. At all times. Bro, I, at all times. I'd be making it up as I go. Nah, he, <laughs> you know, but, but that verse. Ephesians that, 1 22. Yep. Look at that. Look at that. I already got it highlighted. I already got it highlighted. God <laughs> put all things under the authority of Christ. And has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. I mean, that's that, that word, all things repeatedly, all things everywhere. That's kind of a, that's kind of a gem. Okay, let's go back. We can say that Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Yep. We can also say Christ, not Caesar, is head of the public square. Mm. He's head of the state. Christ is not only head of the church. He is rightfully head of every square inch. He bought it by his blood. Romans 13 says that Caesar is an autonomous leader. No, that he's the highest leader with no authority above him. No, it, what it says is that Caesar is God's diaconate, God's servant, that ultimately he has an authority above him. He's not the final ultimate authority, even in the political realm. Hmm. because that realm also has to submit to Jesus. Psalm chapter 2, the kings of this earth and princes of this world, kiss the Son, S-O-N, kiss Jesus. That is, pay homage to the Son, submit to the Lordship of Christ, lest his wrath be quickly kindled, right? So, so Caesar is a deacon of God. He is underneath God. Christ is uniquely, not exclusively, but uniquely head of the church in the sense that the church is the only entity for which Christ died. So Christ is head hmm. of the church in a unique way, but he is not exclusively head of the church. He is head over all things, including the public square, including the body politic, including the government. He is head over Caesar as well. Our faith is not private pietism, but it is private and piety is good, but it is private and public. It, it is not just pietism, private, but not public. It is not just Gnosticism, spiritual, but not physical. And lastly, it is not nihilism. Mm -hmm. The clip that we've just seen, I would say, at least at some measure, it reeks of pietism, private versus public. It reeks of Gnosticism, spiritual versus physical. And nihilism, meaning it's not a red pill, it's a black pill. You lose, young man who wants to serve Christ and be faithful to him. Yep. Buckle up for losing. Yep. See, the difference between post-mill and all-mill and pre-mill and the whole nine yards is this. Here's the difference. To be fair to these eschatological positions, they all believe that Christ wins. The question is how. 
-hmm. How does Christ win? Does Christ win despite a losing church or does Christ win through the church? Mm. Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build, not just sustain my weak, faltering bride. No, I will build, that is expand, increase, and advance my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell are not weapons. They are not offensive. No, the gates of hell is defensive. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that because of his life, death, and resurrection and glorious ascension to the right hand of God Almighty where he's ruling and reigning here and now, because of that reality, the church is on the offense. Hell, the gates, is on the defense. And you can picture it like this. The church of Jesus Christ is the battering rams in, in the battering ram in the hands of Jesus himself, ramming up against the gates of hell, and that hell will not prevail, meaning that the gates, the defense of hell, will not be able to ultimately withstand the advancement and building and increase of Christ's church in the world today. So does Christ win? If you're pre-mill, yes. If you're all-mill, yes. If you're post-mill, yes. But the question is, how does Christ win? Yeah. And the answer is that he doesn't win despite a losing church. He wins progressively throughout real human history in this real world through an advancing church. Hmm. That's good. Sheesh. That's good. So this this is the this is the the, the easiest breakdown of what the post millennial position is. Christ wins through the church, not despite the church. Yep. Go check out his conversation with Mike Winger on Theomony. Now, yep. wh where do I land on post millennial, premillennial, amillennial? Now, I, I'll be completely honest with you. I don't. I don't know. I don't think about this stuff very much. Uh, <laughs> third point. I I really want post millennialism to be true. I want everything he's describing in terms of how the last days are going to play out per. Uh, Ephesians 1 per 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want that to be true, and I would love to see revival break out. I would love to see God use the church to bring people back to him and to influence the world and the nations. I think that would be amazing, but I don't I don't know. I'm not convinced of it. I'm not opposed to, to it. If I had to land in any specific camp, I would probably land in a post-millennial camp without all of the theomony and without this necessarily the seven mountain mandate, which by the way, is a whole interesting parallel that the only folks that hold to, to post-millennialism, generally speaking right now, is these guys, like they're all Calvinists, like the Jeff yeah. Durham types, the James White, they're all Calvinists, or it's the super duper hyper charismatic folks, specifically the Bethel and the Hillsong That's funny. type. So those are the only two people that hold to this, which is very interesting to me. And so, yeah, so I would probably fall into, if I had to pick one, I would want post-millennial to be, post-millennialism to be true, but I don't know. I have no idea. I think, I think from a pragmatic standpoint, if we're talking about with theologies serve the church and serve people better, I do agree that that serves people better than this loom and doom, gloom, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, it's all going It's all going to destroy, what's the point, don't try, don't do anything, you lose down here while I'm worth $10 million, but you lose down here, <laughs> right? I, I, don't, I, don't see any, I don't see any practical benefit to holding to that theology. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying I don't hold any practical benefit. And the reason why I don't think about end times very often is because I don't think it actually changes how you're supposed to carry yourself on this side of eternity. I don't think it changes much of anything. I think you're still called to love your neighbor, be faithful with your resource, be competent, be faithful to Jesus, be a disciple, lay down your life for your wife the way Christ laid down his life for the church, go make disciples. None of that changes with in terms of when and how these things play out. And and I'm not a fan of newer theology, like stuff that's like 100 years old, 150 years old. I'm very skeptical of that. 
personally. Hey, this is a segment from our daily after party stream. Consider partnering with us online for as little as $5 a month to get access to these daily after party streams completely unedited. You'll also get access to our podcast as they are streamed live into the community before anyone else gets to see them, get to interact with our guests, get access to our private Discord server, and a discount code for our store for as little as $5 a month. Ultimately, that will help towards helping us continue contextualizing the gospel using media and podcast here on YouTube. All right, I'll see you over there. Peace.